Well, Jörg, I will say that would probably be the best introduction for today's sermon that we could have asked for, so thank you. Um, Seriously, seriously, and hopefully by the end of today, not to answer all the questions because I don't know you can, but maybe a little bit more clarity as a result of this. Um, We're ending Job. Woohoo! Job is an awesome book of the Bible. And um, I, I, it reminds me of the courtroom dramas. It really does. I, I, I don't know if you guys, I know I've likened it to that. But here at the end, we, we see what I would call, and this is why the title of the sermon is called A Sudden Turn of Events, right? How many of you have ever seen A Few Good Men? Raise your hand. Okay? And, and the crux of this movie turns. I mean, if you've watched the trailer for it, I remember watching the trailer for it. You've got Tom Cruise, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. And, and just jumps into that whole thing. And if you've never watched the movie, I'm spoiling it for you now. I'm sorry. Um, but it's still, you know, one of those movies. You have a, a, a person who has been um, harmed, you know, through these um, initiations, if you will, uh, concerning the military. And so you have these uh, people who have gone in and they have called what, what is called a code red, which is to go out and to punish somebody who they felt was not living up to the standard that was there. And the whole movie revolves around trying to prove that it's, that it's this colonel who's in charge of this facility who's really causing all of this to happen. And it ends in a courtroom drama. And things are not going well at all. As a matter of fact, uh, Tom Cruise and his character is losing the case. And then he makes this decision that he's going to push and press this colonel, that this colonel wants to tell everybody the truth. He doesn't want to hide behind the lies and just wants to tell everybody, this is how we do it, this is how we keep you safe. And so you get to that point in the movie, he says, you know, I, I want the truth. He says, you can't handle the truth. And there he confesses in front of everybody that he did indeed call out that code red and says, I'm leaving, I'm going to walk out of there. And of course, he gets arrested. But then at the end of the movie, the two people who were on trial also remain arrested. And they don't understand because they said they were doing just what they were supposed to do except for the fact that they were supposed to protect the person in whom they ended up harming. It turns on that small confrontation right there. And like I said, I, I, love, I love a good movie that does that, where it showed it to you in the trailer, but it didn't really show you what was happening there. You, you think that that's happened. Another movie that, that turns on that same dime is, is the, the first movie in the God Not, God's Not Dead series. Same thing that happens. Why do you hate God? It's the same kind of courtroom trial inside the classroom. Why do you hate God? And again, if you watch the trailer... It sets it up beautifully because you, you see this whole thing happening. And finally, the professor who is against God, who's given this platform for three sessions, breaks down. And if you haven't seen the movie, I'm spoiling it for you again. But it's been out like seven years, so I don't feel so bad right now, okay? And he says, why do you hate God? And the professor says, because he took everything from me. I hate him. I have nothing but hate. 
To which the student replies, how can you hate someone if he doesn't exist? Whole movie just turns on that, doesn't it? Whole understanding of it turns on that. In Job, this is what we're getting here too. But it doesn't seem like it. Because Jorgen is a perfect testimony, honestly. Couldn't have asked for a better testimony uh, beforehand. Because it doesn't seem like it's quite the same thing because we've had Job and we've had these terrible things that have happened to him. And Jorg is right, those things are still going to have happened to him even after all of this has taken place. And then you had Elihu, who was possibly the person who's sitting at the city gate, as Pastor Mark had talked about this last week, and and being kind of this, this... jury, if you will, saying, wait a second, you guys haven't really disproven Job over here on his account of righteousness, but Job, you haven't really tried to defend God's honor either. And then all of a sudden, God shows up. And that's what we've read this week, right? And when God shows up, we see four chapters straight with questions, seemingly unrelated to anything that Job is going through. And it seems in some respects, we've taken a turn of events, and and some people look at this passage of Scripture and think that it's wholly unsatisfying in answering Job's question. But I would tell you today, that I believe that he answers the question very well and probably better for our age today than even what Job was going through. And I hope to explain that as we look at it together. So turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles. We're going to look at part of the discourse of, of God in the midst of this. God covers a lot of things uh, in these four chapters. We're not going to be exhaustive in that. We're going to start looking at Job chapter 38, and we're going to read the first 38 verses of this together. And then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it on what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, and when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that that it might take the earth by its edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like day under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arms is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. 
What is the way to the abode of light, and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed, or the place where the east winds are scattered all over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and to make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? And from whom's womb comes the ice? And who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? When the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Or lead out the bear with its cubs? Or do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens? And when the dust becomes hard and the clods of the earth stick together. So when God comes in, this may seem a little bit like deflection, but it really isn't. And we're going to discuss that more as this time goes on. God begins by talking about creation. All that he's created in the vast enormity of space. Because what's happening with Job is that he wants to remain righteous in the sight of God. And so he takes this idea of justice that he has in his mind and places God on the scales of that justice and says, man, if I could just talk to God, right? If I could just talk to God about justice, he would see me as just and I would be able to stand before him justified because of my actions, that none of these things should have happened to me. This is Job's position. And God hits him with, do you understand how the universe was created? Where the east winds blow. Do you know how I make the waves stop and not cover the entirety of the earth? Do you understand how the snow is made and where it places itself and where each of the lightning bolts go? Do they report to you? Can you shake out the earth and get the wicked out of it? Can you do all of that, Job? Can you? I would dare say that in today's day and age with the internet and all the information that is at our fingertips, we are more haughty than Job's situation is. Because we think we know more answers than we do. Let me give you a perfect example. I am a child of the 70s and 80s, and while I was growing up, one of the things I loved doing, I loved astronomy. 
And I lived during a time, I'm blessed to live during a time where we had Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 launch off. How many of you remember that? How many of you followed that? I mean, new National Geographic, it's going, to, it's going to Jupiter. So I buy the National Geographic with all the pictures of Jupiter and, oh my goodness, this is crazy. All the pictures of Saturn and then when it got to Uranus and when it got to Neptune, I got all the pictures of that. I was so excited with each new place that it got to. I can tell you when it got there too. It got to Neptune in 89. Did you guys know that? Because I remember that. I was an avid follower of it. Well, in 2018, Voyager 2, not Voyager 1, Voyager 1 saw uh, Jupiter and Saturn and then shot off in a different direction. And it left the heliosphere, which is the atmosphere of the sun, in 2012. In 2018, they were looking forward for Voyager 2 doing the same. Right? And so they were saying, we're looking forward because it's going out in this direction. It should be reaching the edge of the heliosphere any day now. And I followed it. You know why? Because I like astronomy and I'm a geek like that. That's just the way it is, okay? Here's the irony of it. They had already had Voyager 1 go out. They had that happen six years before. They were sure it was going to happen in just a few days. didn't happen in a few days. As a matter of fact, it took two extra months from what their calculations were for Voyager 2 to actually leave the heliosphere. Did you guys know that? How many of you knew that? Some of you knew that. Yeah, you were following too. Yes! Some astronomy nerds like me. Love it. Why do I mention this? The heliosphere is the atmosphere of our sun, the closest star to Earth. 93 million miles away. Now, if we were to read in all the science textbooks right now, they would tell us without any problem, without any qualification whatsoever, we know exactly how big the universe is, right? It is 13.6 to 13.7 billion years across, light years across. That's what all the textbooks tell us, right? And the hubris that goes into that when we don't even know the length of the atmosphere of our own star that's right next to us. We didn't miss it by one day. You have to realize Voyager 2 is traveling at a speed of 50,000 miles per hour. You multiply 50,000 miles per hour by two months of travel. That's a long road trip. That's how much they missed it by. And this was the closest star. That we, this one that we're around and we know the most about. And yet our hubris, we say we know everything about all of these different places. Look at, the, look at it. Look at the scientific community right now and the things that they write down and how sure they are of it. But they've got nobody on the other side to confirm those things. And so God starts with a place that he knows the definite answer to that we don't. How did all this happen? How did all this take place? You know, we describe through science the effects of things that we can see, but can we make those things happen? Those are two totally different things, aren't they? The fact that the earth lives in the quote-unquote Goldilocks zone. How many of you know what that means? Raise your hand. 
few of you do, Goldilocks zone. It means it's Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold, just right. If we were a little bit closer to the sun, all the water on the earth would evaporate and dry up. If we were just a little bit farther from the sun, everything would freeze and we'd be a frozen wasteland incapable of having life as we know it today, as the scientific community states. All of these factors needed to be. Now, we can, by science, describe those things, but we can't make it happen. And the God of the universe is talking to Job and saying, did you know this? Do you know how long the universe is? Do you know who created everything that is here? And you're going to question me as if you understand this better than I do? My very nature is justice. My very nature is righteousness. And you're going to tell me through your observation that somehow you have observed something I didn't account for. So let me tell you about the things that I've created and you tell me, how did this come to be? Tell me about the lightning. Tell me about the seas and where they go no further. Tell me about the the direction of the universe or why the stars rotate in the sky the way they do or why they're staying stationary the way that they have ever since recorded creation. The same Pleiades and Orion we look at today. You guys realize that? As markers for time for you and I. We take it for granted just because of that constant state, because God is a God of order, right? Never asking, but how did all this become? So two very different questions, aren't they? And so the Creator speaks to the created about His creation. That's what we see. Chapter 38 is about the creation in the large form of it. The earth, everything that's in it, the clouds, the light, the dark, the gates of death and the shadow of death, and taking care of the wicked. All of that is in chapter 38 that we just read. Chapter 39 talks about the animal kingdom and all that happens within the animal kingdom. Not everything, but a number of instances. He says, you know, Since you know so much, how did I make them like this? Who takes care of them? How do you know that which one has wisdom and which one was not made without wisdom and why I made them that way? Since you're so smart. 40 and 41 bring in the idea of the behemoth and the leviathan, these mighty creatures which may very well have been dinosaurs. Talking about, can you tame these mighty beasts? Can you? They don't fear you. (laughs) They're a little bit bigger than you are. Can you treat them like a pet? Because I created them and they're my servants. So in the middle of this discourse, in Job chapter 40, if you'll turn with me there, There's kind of a pause in between the animal kingdom and these two great monsters to talk about God's greatness and His power. First 14 verses of chapter 40 
There's a pause, and this is what it says. The Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you, will, you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. And then I myself will admit to you that you, that your own right hand can save you. And so God contends with Job concerning the very justice that he's being accused of not delivering to him. Is that any different than what we have today? Basically, God is saying, this is hubris on your part to question my justice. Do you understand who created justice, whose very nature is justice? Not that these things are easy to understand. They're hard. When we get into this idea of unjust suffering, when we look at Job and he's wondering, I've lost all of this, and it doesn't seem like I deserved it because, God, I was trying to serve and follow you. And we live in an age in which people try to use this very argument against justice as a club to bludgeon anybody who says that there is a God. Well, what about this? Well, bam. And how they do it is they use simplistic arguments to try and tackle something that's exceptionally complex. This is what God is talking about, by the way, in in chapters 38 and 39. He's talking about the complexity of the world. He's saying it is so complex, you don't understand it. You might learn to observe it. You might be able to describe some of the things that I have set in motion, but you couldn't tell me how I did this, how my own right hand created all this, and what has happened as a result of this. You're out of your league right now. You're trying to explain from this minuscule level, this idea that I not only created, but am in my very nature. And we do it today. So I looked up online, because you can find it anywhere, you know. So I looked up online, these memes that are out there, and it's, it's the same idea. These are memes against God, and most of these are memes against God concerning his idea of justice. And you're going to hear some of the same types of argument in such a simplistic form. Some of you are going to get mad as I'm reading these things. It's okay, okay? I got five of them here. Number one, so you're saying that God didn't bother to stop the Holocaust, but he cured your cancer. (laughs) Well, aren't you special? Number two, if this is your God, he's not very impressive. He's got psychological problems. He's so insecure that he demands worship every seven days. He creates faulty humans and then blames them for his own mistakes. He's a pretty poor excuse for a supreme being. Number three, this Jesus talking to a little boy in paradise in heaven. Jesus says this. Do you see, do you see that man over there, Timmy? Timmy, yes, Jesus, I see him. And Jesus says, 
That's the man that murdered you and your family while you were sleeping. He repented and asked for forgiveness. Now he's in paradise with us. Go say hello. Meme number four. It's a comparison between God and Hitler. It has God on one side and Hitler on the other side. And under the picture of God, which isn't really a picture of God, it's one of those like Michelangelo pictures, you know, um, of God, it says, um, drowns millions. Hitler on the other side, gasses millions. And underneath the thing is, but, but God had a good reason. Man was evil and corrupting God's plan for a perfect world. Not like Hitler's excuse that the Jews were evil and corrupting his plan for a perfect Germany. Totally different. Number five. People would be more likely to believe God existed if he stayed in touch and let them know when demagogues were inciting wars in his name. If God did this and said, that's not what I meant, when he saw the crusades and inquisitors begin, They would not kill each other for lies. Now, how many of you are angry? (laughs) Some of you are like, how many many of you were angry after number one? How many of you took number two, three, four, five, somewhere along the way, like, oh, it just gets to me. And why do you and I get angry? Because... These simplistic statements concerning the justice and nature of God offend us, doesn't it? They take a a meme and a caricature, right, of something that we know is not true or something that is twisted because they don't have a full understanding of it and replace it with something inferior. In, in, uh, In philosophy, it's called a straw man argument, right? We're creating a straw man that we can knock down. It it doesn't really represent the real thing because the real thing is a lot more complex than that. And the more complex it is, it's why we're offended. We know that that's not the way it is. And what we don't realize is when we're reading Job right here, that's exactly what God is saying to him. You're talking to me about justice, but I am justice. And I'm more complex than that small understanding of yours because you're hurting right now because you're going through a trial and yes this trial is something i have allowed in your life and it's hard but it doesn't impugn my justice to do so and to treat it as so is not to understand. It's the difference between observing the universe and creating it. That's a huge difference, isn't it? We do the same thing when we impugn God on this idea of justice. And as I read these atheist memes, we're all offended by it because we say that that's not so. It's too simplistic a view. This is what God is saying. This is exactly what God is saying in Job chapter 40 to Job himself. And so what's Job's reaction to it all? Well, we see Job's reaction in Job chapter 42. After God has got that second line of questioning, after he talked about his justice, listen to Job. And then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours 
can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. And you said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's interesting to me because now the one who's been suffering the whole time has no problem with his suffering. He's experienced God face to face. We can read the epilogue. We can see how God reprimands his three friends and says, you have not spoke rightly about me as Job has spoken rightly about me. But part of Job speaking rightly about him was humbling himself before the Lord and saying, I don't fully understand all of this. But I know that you are perfect justice. Not an excuse against justice. Not an excuse toward God can make an injustice. God is righteousness. And righteousness, according to the scripture, is justice. Those two words are the same. Mark did a great job breaking that down. To have a righteous God means that he is always just. Even if we don't fully see it at that moment. This is why he confronts them with these questions that have nothing to do with justice. This is why he sets this up. Now, here's the interesting thing. Because as we talk about all of this, and we talk about justice, we see God's justice perfectly displayed where? In the person of Jesus Christ. Job would elude to him as this advocate. If I just had an advocate, right? Someone who would speak for me. This is who Jesus is. And so what do we see in Jesus? All the qualities, when we look in chapter 38, all the qualities that we see about God, that only God can do, we see in Jesus. So what happens in Matthew chapter 8? You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to summarize some of the things that Jesus said. We see Jesus calming the storm. He's in the boat sleeping, and there's this terrible storm where all the people who he surrounded himself with, who are fishermen, who are there, who know what it's like to be around this type of squall, are worried for their lives. They wake Jesus up. Hey, wake up or else we're going to drown. And Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. And all of a sudden, still. Earlier in that chapter, we see Jesus healing all manner of sickness and disease. The very thing that sin has brought into this world. And Jesus touches somebody and they're cured of it. Are you going to explain how that happened? We go back to that God question again? Because only God can do that, right? He's showing through his actions that he is who he says he is. That's why he says in John, look, if you don't believe in me, at least believe in the works that testify about me because I am doing something that only God can do. Matthew chapter 14, we see him walking on water. Who said to the water, you go this far and no further. And Jesus is saying, you're going this far and no further because I want to use you as sidewalk. Why? Because he's God. He can do what he wants, right? 
with the wind and the waves and the water that is there. He bids Peter to come out there and Peter gets to step a few times and understand, who this is cool, and then he starts sinking. I wouldn't have made step one. Peter gets a bad rap there, like, dude, he took two more steps than I ever have on water. He got to experience that. We look at Matthew chapter 17, we see the transfiguration. You know, Moses was with God for 40 days on the mountain. When he comes back down, he's glowing, right? Because he's been in the presence of God. He's absorbed, if you will, and is radiating that light, that glory from God. And they're like, we can't look at you. Cover yourself. He's like, you're, you're, we need sunglasses for you. Jesus himself transfigures to light. Remember, one of those questions in Job. Who controls the light? Who makes darkness? Jesus is standing there and in himself is transfigured into a figure of light right there before them. I'm God. Only God can do this. Only God can do this. John chapter 5, he says, look, I have the power over death that at my voice, those who are dead will be made alive again. Because of my power, this is something that the Father has said I can do. Because I can do anything that the Father does. Whatever the Father does, I see him do, I can do. This is what he's given to me. And he's given to me all judgment. This idea of righteousness, right? All judgment belongs to the Son, John chapter 5. And beyond that, John chapter 10, he says, And I have the power to lay down my life and to take it up again. This is a command that I've received from the Father in heaven. And in Jesus, we have perfect righteousness. We have the person of God in human form who comes to the earth for you and me to die on the cross for our sins. To stand as an advocate for us. And those in the Old Testament, they're looking forward to this advocate. We, we look back to see that finished work on the cross and the resurrected Jesus, same person, same God that we're looking at. And we don't see it totally here right now. We still see sin. We still see injustice. We still see wrong things happening, right? And yet you and I are promised that someday, by Jesus' own word, that he's going to have all judgment to himself, right? And he's going to judge rightly. And here's what it says in Revelation chapter 20. Starting in verse 11. It's at the end of time. And then I saw a great white throne of him and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. One day, someday, when the end of time comes and Jesus comes back and everybody is raised up from the dead, we are going to stand before the throne and perfect, righteous judgment will take place. 
The problem with you and I sometimes when we think about judgment and we think about suffering is that we don't think we deserve it. The only ones who are justified at the throne of God are those in the Lamb's book of life, not through any action of their own. Their works are in all the other books. My works are in those other books. All that has the power to do is condemn me before God. That's it. Every work that I've done, as good as I can be, or as bad as I truly am. We want to stand righteous before God and think that our sin isn't as bad as it is. We want to stand righteous before God and pretend that whatever might happen in this world, whether we think it's justified or not, somehow gives us the right to think that God, in the end, will not be just. And he's promised us one day, someday, at the place where justice and mercy and grace meet at the cross of Jesus Christ, those who have accepted Jesus Christ will receive the justice, mercy, and grace given because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And we will get life in his name, not ours, not because of our righteousness. And we can look Old Testament new. Israel was not commended because of their righteousness. We are not commended for ours. It's all God who justifies and is the justifiers of those who believe in him. It's not about us or what happens in this life. It's about him. And when we stand before the throne of God and those books are open, we are going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt one of two things that are happening. Number one is this. Not a single one of us is worthy to stand before God and think that we deserve to be in his presence in heaven forever. Not a single one of us. Those books are going to be opened. They're going to reveal your and my everything. The good, the bad, the ugly. Before God, in the closed doors where nobody else can see, God knows it. It's not a scare tactic. It's just the truth. And for true justice to be administered, all of those moments have to be weighed, don't they? Otherwise, it's not true justice. It's not real righteousness. And every single one of us will see the rightness of the condemnation that every one of us deserves before God. And then there's going to be another book that's opened. And it's the Lamb's book of life. That all who recognize that Jesus died on the cross for my sin, that that was my punishment, my deserving, Everything that he endured, that was for me. We minimize that. Every single one of us, when we start questioning the justice of God, we minimize that should have been us. He took our place. We're not righteous of our own merit and never will be. It's all because of Jesus. And when we get to heaven, it will be all praise because he bought salvation for you and I. Not because we deserved it, but because he gave it freely for us because of his love for us. And if we understood the depth of that, we'd come running to the cross of Christ, begging for that transformation, 
understanding that it's the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms you and me to be children of God, not because we deserve it, but because he offered it freely. We serve such a good God. We serve such a good God. And none of us are righteous in our own eyes. I pray today that we reflect a little bit on the grandeur of God, the grandeur of this world and this universe, to ponder the questions that he asked, not just of Job, but of us. Do we really understand? Do we? Shouldn't there be just a little bit of humility as it's pertained to our understanding of who God is? And what we don't understand of him. And what he's graciously revealed and done for us in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've struggled with the idea of God's justice. And I so appreciate. What Jorg has brought forward. And I, I totally understand. I really do. And yet I don't. Because I'm not God. But I'm humble enough to understand that. Jesus died for me. And he rose from the dead to promise you and me eternal life. And he's shown through all the qualifications that God has said, can you do this? Jesus did it because he's God. To show his righteousness, his justice, and his love and mercy all in one person. That you and I can have life in his name. What an honor. Why wouldn't I live for someone who did that for me? No matter what I had to go through for him. Would you stand with me? I pray you know this, Jesus. If you've ever questioned the goodness of God, I pray today that you just humble yourself and it may not be something you ever understand. It's probably something I'm never going to fully understand. But I'll tell you a couple of things that I know is 100% true. I'm a sinner. I deserve nothing but God's wrath. As good as I am on my best day, I have nothing to bring to the table. Everything that I have of worth is because he created me in his image, not because he had to but because he wanted to. And the other thing I know is that Jesus has come to die for me so that I could be with him forever in heaven. That someday, one day, everything that we think is an injustice is going to be rightly judged before the throne of God. And every single one of us will say amen, no matter what side of the book we're standing on. I pray. Every one of your names is in the Lamb's book of life. And if it's not, today's a great day to find out how to be. God, I want to thank you for today. I want to thank you for the book of Job. I want to thank you for the hard subjects, Lord, of understanding your justice and your mercy and your grace of what unjust suffering 
entails and how we should just cling to you all the harder, Lord. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't deserve to be in your presence, but you created us in your image anyway. We don't deserve to be in your presence, but you sent Jesus to die for us anyway. We don't deserve to be in your presence, but one day, someday, by your grace, you're going to judge all unrighteousness before your throne perfectly, holy, balancing the difference between righteousness and mercy and grace. And all of us will say, Amen. Amen. I pray, O Lord, that if we haven't done so already, we do so today. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.